Great. Okay. So um, it's great that I can be here to uh, talk to you about uh, animal advocacy as a form of effective, effective altruism. But as you can see, I'm also wearing this badge from The Life You Can Save, which is an organization that spun off the book that uh, Rob mentioned uh, that I wrote called The Life You Can Save in 2009. Um, and uh, there's now this international organization which uh, exists in many places, including Melbourne. There's a Melbourne group if you're interested in belonging to it. And uh, it's working for global poverty. So um, these are two issues that I've worked on over the years. And I think it's great that they come together under the umbrella of uh, effective altruism. Uh, but I am here today to talk to you about the animal issue and following something like the uh, kinds of themes that, that Rob began with to introduce what we're talking about. Uh, it's a question of what are the problems, what is the size of the problems, the importance of the problems, and which are the neglected problems. So I'm starting off with a cute photo so that you can all go, ah... <laughs> And of course, the answer to this question, I'm sure, for everybody in the room is no, you would never harm a gorgeous little kitten like that. And I'm sure that's true. <clears throat> On the other hand, if I show you uh, a shot of uh, battery hens, egg-laying hens in cages, which unfortunately are still pretty standard like this in Australia, although they have been uh, at least modified uh, in Europe and uh, um, some of them are disappearing in the United States. Um, you know, that's a different question. And uh, any of you who are just walking down to the supermarket and buying eggs uh, that come from caged hens are contributing to the harm that these hens are constantly enduring. Uh, and if you're buying pig products too, um, unless they're humanely certified, they may be coming, they may be the the piglets of sows kept like this in, a, in an individual stall, uh, also still permitted um, without even room to turn around uh, and without any bedding to lie on, as you can see here, just lying on a bare concrete floor and uh, you know, living like this for her entire pregnancy, which is actually most of her life. That's her useful life. That's her role to be a breeding machine. Uh, so, you know, maybe a um, little more sympathy for pigs than, than hens. Um, but on the other hand, probably much less sympathy for fish, um, which if we're talking about wild-caught fish, at least we don't, are not interfering with their lives. But there is no humane slaughter for uh, the commercial fishing industry. So in terms of uh, how they died, uh, they will die a death with more suffering than the animals that I've just shown you. All right, so where does this get us? What I'm suggesting is that we have very different attitudes to different species of animals and that that in itself isn't something that we can ethically defend. The principle that I've argued for uh, since writing Animal Liberation back in the 1970s, and I think it's one that has still stood up um, to philosophical discussion and uh, criticism that certainly comes around any principle, but um, I certainly still defend it and I think it's gaining increasing acceptance, is that we ought to give equal weight to the similar interests of every individual, irrespective of race, 
sex or species. Of course, I put in race and sex because, again, you probably all accept that already there, but if you accept that we shouldn't give less consideration to the interests, similar interests, of someone on account of their race or sex, then why is species going to be any different? Now, you might say, oh, but the, the interests of different species are less similar than the interests of human beings of different races or sexes. That's true, but I do have the word similar interests here. I'm talking about where we can compare interests. Interests, for example, in not feeling pain, in suffering, not suffering in various ways. So, um, not, not following this principle of equal consideration... Uh, I've used the term speciesism, which is now also in fairly wide use, um, again, to make that parallel with racism and sexism, uh, something that we ought to reject. But whereas normally when I talk about speciesism, I'm talking about the speciesism that we use when we favour humans over non-human animals, which is really the basis of the way we treat non-human animals in general, I now also want to recognise that there can be speciesism that leads us to favour some species of animals over others, particularly those that we feel more attracted to or those that we are, where we are in close personal relationships with members of that species, which obviously is mostly cats and dogs. So I think we ought to reject both kinds of speciesism and that if we think that this is wrong... These are dogs being captured in order to be sold for food in Asia. If we think that this is wrong, then we ought to think that this is wrong. These are chickens being raised for sale in supermarkets in this city and pretty much pretty similar methods of production everywhere in the world. 20,000 chickens maybe in a single shed, very crowded. And also, and this is something you can't see here, Bread to grow so fast, bread to put on weight so fast, that by the time they start to get close to the weight at which they're going to be killed, their legs are not mature enough really to support their weight. And as a result of that, experts who've looked at it say that they are in chronic pain for the last weeks of their life, and in some cases their legs will actually collapse under them and they will simply die of dehydration or starvation because they can no longer move to get food. The food is in these lines. Food and water is coming down through these pipes. Um, and of course there's no individual veterinary care. That would be ridiculous. They're just not worth it um, in commercial terms. So they'll just lie there and die. And those are why uh, Professor John Webster who's uh, the founder of what's I think perhaps the largest centre for research into animal welfare in the world at the University of Bristol certainly one of the largest, says that raising chickens is the single most severe systematic example of man's inhumanity to another sentient animal. So the problem is there, the severity of the problem, going back to the things that Rob was talking about, is there. And the size of the problem is there. We have to look at quantity. So let's look at it. If we're talking about numbers, then whereas the number of vertebrate animals killed annually in research worldwide, which is another big issue that animal community often focuses on, is about 100 million, which seems like a large figure, 
If you compare that with the number just of vertebrate land animals, put aside the fish, um, killed annually in food production, it's around 60 billion. So food production uses roughly 600 times more animals than uh, killed in research. Now, you might say, yes, but do they suffer as much as the animals in research? Well, let's have a look at an interesting graph that talks about that. These, the size of these circles do not represent the, simply the numbers that I was talking about a moment ago. If they did, the one on the left, the chickens, which would be something like, um, you know, the majority of that 60 billion animals would be, I don't know, 40 to 50 billion, would just take over the whole slide. What this is, is the number of chickens who don't actually survive to slaughter. And remember, these are very young animals. They're, they're killed at uh, six weeks of age, 42 days. So if they're not surviving to slaughter, they're dying painful deaths from something going wrong. As I said, maybe their legs have collapsed under them so they can't move. Maybe they've succumbed to the stress of the crowding. You know, chickens have not really evolved to live in those sorts of very crowded situations. And, of course, they're not with their mothers as they normally would be. So... They're deaths that involve suffering, and there's about 140 million of them. And if you compare that with the number of animals killed in shelters, for fur, and in laboratories each year put together, you can see that it's close to six times as many. So even if you just focus on that and just talk about chickens, you would find that farm animal welfare is a vastly larger problem than all the other animal problems put together. But where does the money go? Now we get to the neglectedness issue that Rob was talking about. This is a quote from Wayne Pacelli, who's the president of the largest animal welfare organization in the United States, the Humane Society of the United States. So he is probably talking about US uh, figures, but I'm guessing it's not going to be all that different here. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's his estimate that um, whereas 90% of the money going to the cause of animal protection is devoted to cats and dogs, animals abused on farms or in laboratories, he's adding them together here, receive a tenth of that available resource, though they represent more than 99% of the, of the animals at risk. So if we want to be effective animal altruists, um, effective altruists, then I think we need to redress that. And this is my last slide, which shows the same sort of thing from basically another source, from Animal Charity Evaluators, which is uh, an organization and a website that is trying to evaluate animal charities. Again, it's uh, American-based and it's not... I don't think there's any Australian charities uh, in its top recommended lists. Um, but uh, if you're looking at what's going on here, then again, you have the number of animals used and you see the colors. So the farm animals are the gray area. It's virtually all of them and uh, the lab, and then you probably can't even see from the back. The shelters is this tiny little green slice on that, and uh, clothing, fur is the other one. And then you look at where the money goes, you see the complete disproportion. This tiny little barely visible green line on that side has blown up into whatever it is, two-thirds, three-quarters of the entire chart, and the farm animals now are uh, down in this small grey block over there. So um, 
This is a problem, I think, if we're concerned about animal advocacy, we need to try to educate people in terms of looking at what is effective. Um, the final thing that I haven't mentioned, and just very briefly, is to say that what Rob calls solvability, sometimes called attractability of the problem, can we actually have an impact? You might say, well, we can help some rescued dogs and cats, but we can't do anything about factory farming. That's clearly not true. The animal uh, organisations in this country and elsewhere in the world have had a significant impact on factory farming. They've reduced the severity of the confinement, uh, less, I'd say, unfortunately, in Australia so far than in the European Union, but um, still some progress has been made. Um, Certainly we have now uh, far more availability of free-range eggs than uh, existed before the animal movement started, when in fact there were, when I started getting involved in this in the 1970s, you could not buy free-range eggs legally in Victoria. Legally you could not buy them because all eggs had to be supplied to the Victorian Egg Board, which bulked them, didn't distinguish whether how they came from. So there was no commercial incentive to produce free-range or cage-free eggs at all. Now, of course, if you walk into the supermarket, you have that choice. So, yes, we can make an impact. And, of course, by promoting vegetarian and vegan diets, we can also reduce the number of animals who are going to be suffering in this, these forms of confinement as well. And there's some evidence that that's starting to make an impact in uh, developed Western nations anyway. So I think the problem is solvable or at least reducible and because it's such a huge problem, I think if we're interested in doing something to reduce animal suffering, that's where we ought to be doing it. Thanks very much.